This is Toledo Symphony Lab, a behind-the-scenes look at the world of classical music from WGTE Public Media and your Toledo Symphony. I'm Brad Cresswell. Joining me today are the Toledo Symphony's president and CEO, Zach Vassar, principal second violin and artistic administrator, Merwin Sue. We also have the TSO's marketing director, Felicia Canny, and a special guest has joined us, a real live musicologist here from Bowling Green State University. That is Effie Papanicolaou. Effie Papanicolaou. That's right? correct. I promise <laughs> I, I did practice your name before we got started. But welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me here. So you're here to sort of keep us honest, right? Because we're going to talk about a, a subject that is been talked about, been written about, been thought about by so many different people, and that is this idea of the Schumanns, Robert Schumann and Clara Schumann, and Johannes Brahms, and the relationship between the three of them. I spent years and years in the wilderness of trying to figure out just what went on between these three (laughs) folks, so I'm hoping that your presence here today, Effie, can help shine some light on this relationship. Before we get started with that, I want to mention that today's episode is inspired by a concert, believe it or not, a Toledo Symphony concert that's happening this weekend, February 22nd and 23rd, 8 o'clock p.m., the Toledo Museum of Art Peristyle. This is music of Robert Schumann. We're going to hear an overture of his, um, the piano concerto of Clara Schumann, and the symphony number one of Johannes Brahms. So that's where this idea of these three composers coming together is coming from. This concert also uh, features pianist Sarah Davis Buchner. Is mm-hmm. that how you say your name? Buchner? I think Buchner. Buchner, yeah. okay. Yeah. But not Bueller. Definitely right. not Bueller. <laughs> yeah, I want to be careful Bueller. about that. Bueller. So today is my day to learn how to pronounce everybody's name, right? <laughs> Sarah Davis uh, Buchner is performing on the piano. She's doing the Clara Schumann Piano Concerto. Leo Quokman is conducting. They've both been here before. Uh, well-known to Toledo audiences. So it, it's going to be a great concert. The music is fantastic. I want to talk about the music in a bit. But first, let's get into this whole idea of the love triangle. You want to give us sort of the, you know, the Reader's Digest version of, of, of what went on in the lives of these three composer, performer, musicians? Effie, the I'm, ball's in your court. I'm accepting the charge and the challenge. Um, <laughs> what I'm not going to say is that this is... Wow. Okay. You're not used to having a Greek chorus, do you? No. (laughs) What I'm not going to say is this is not the Catherine Hepburn rendition of the triangle. Hang on a second. Um, Let me pull up some music for you. This is, yeah, it it makes it more fun if we have a little background music. Okay, okay. There you go. Do you want this to work as melodrama kind of? You know, just go with it. Go with the flow. (laughs) Whatever you're inspired to do. I want to go back to Catherine Hepburn. Catherine Hepburn was Clara Schumann in this uh, triangle. In this movie, yes. Uh, All I can say... Which one was Spencer Tracy? I don't remember. I think it would be Robert, but not Brahms. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. (laughs) Well, who was Brahms then? That'd be Jimmy Stewart. Really? Wow! <laughs> Seriously? No. Okay. Jimmy Stewart, uh, to reference prior episodes, as a Muppet, right? Um, I'm at a disadvantage here. I don't have this previous knowledge. Yeah, We're making okay. this all up. I think sounds like a great a, movie, though. Yeah. Knowledge is probably a really high, high polluting <laughs> term to talk about what uh, we're talking about. Let's let's not set the bar too high, okay? Yeah. Here right. we go. Okay. As you so, in October of 1853. 20-year-old Johannes Brahms knocks on the door of the Schumanns in Dusseldorf 
and he introduces himself and he says, "You're my idol. I love you. I love your music." And these they, days, that would be called stalking. Yes, it would be was called he, stalking. In, in seriousness, was he saying that to both Clara and Robert, or just to one of the at other? the time? I think only to Robert. Okay. Uh, but Clara was around, mm-hmm. and they were kind enough to include him in their family, mm-hmm. and they let him stay with them for about a month. Mm-hmm. And for about a month, they kept writing music, playing music, looking at each other's music, and having a lot of fun. Um, and how, how with, old were they? Well, Clara at that time was in '53. She was what thirty-four. Okay. Uh, so yeah, and Schumann was, was older, obviously, and, and Brahms was sort of on the other end, younger than Clara. Okay. Oh, he was young and handsome. If yeah. you have in mind the Brahms with the long beard, that was not a 20-year-old <laughs> Johannes. He was quite hey. a catch. Yeah. He was <laughs> very, very handsome. So I don't know if that's of interest to anybody. Uh, but within a year, uh, and this is common knowledge, I think, uh, Schumann attempted suicide, yeah. and he asked to be institutionalized, and after that, actually, Brahms moved into the household full-time and helped Clara out and the kids and took care of the household on a daily basis. This is this is where we should make sure we distinguish between correlation and causation. Yes. <laughs> I yes. don't necessarily think Brahms being around caused Robert Schumann to commit suicide. It's just it was merely yeah. kind of around the same time it happened to be at that time. Well, uh, Schumann, Robert Schumann, what what you know did a whole uh, lot to advance Brahms's career. I mean, he was you know the greatest thing since sliced bread as far as Schumann. Right, was because within one month after their first meeting, he wrote the famous review for the Neue Zeitschrift für yeah. Musik, mm-hmm. and basically he said he's the eagle of German music, and he's yeah. going to save German music. Wow. And then and he made the mistake no of saying, you know, yeah, he's no the heir to Beethoven or something like that, <laughs> which, 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 you know, caused Brahms not to finish his first symphony for 20 years. But well, we'll get into that a little bit later. Billo had something to do with that, too. Yeah. But now, <laughs> when Schumann, Robert Schumann, when he was in the uh, asylum, didn't they tell him that Clara could not visit him? And That's Brahms right. was sort of the go-between. That's right. Um, he had a doctor who was uh, v- who had very interesting techniques and methods for the time for the institution institutionalized. And he wouldn't let Clara visit. But if you think of the institutions at that time, of the asylums, as you call them, uh those were not pretty places to visit. And mm-hmm. especially when we think of what the image will, I'm sure we'll come back to that, what the image of the female was in the 19th century. She was fragile and she was very sensitive. And, oh my gosh, Clara can't see her husband in that condition because she's not going to be able to take it. Yeah. Um, so that's why she didn't go, not because she didn't want to, but she would send Brahms. Huh. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, you you kind of touched on something which I think is going to be a point of contention here, and the, the idea of talking about Clara Schumann as the muse that you know inspired these composers. You have love letters and music between Robert and Clara, and then you have Brahms. If you look at his letters to her, even they they start getting you know more and more intimate and and full blown sexy with you know I'm waiting for your kiss and all that sort of thing. But that I happens. Think the music needs to come back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
But that happens when Robert is dead. Right. Until then, he wouldn't dare say yeah, anything no. like that. It's not like it was during that month that they were all living together that he was, you know, <laughs> knocking at the door. Uh, no, yeah. he was very respectful. But if they made the movie now, that's how it would happen. <laughs> right? We made the movie now. It would be Robert would jump into the Rhine River because of Brahms. Right. And, right. And all of that. Yeah, we could take literary well, life. I mean, they're all dead. They're not going to complain at this point, right? Sure. Well, you can complain on their behalf. So, but but there was, I mean, um, so we we have to remember that Clara Schumann was a, a significant composer herself. And that there was a great reputation here that uh, that Brahms would look to her after Robert died for some amount of validation of his, yeah. his writing and his, his career. Um, and e- even to the point where I think he started writing his what we now know as the first piano concerto as a symphony, but she didn't care much for it, right? Well, they had a very contentious exchange Mm-hmm. Uh, of letters about that. But Brahms always respected her musical opinion, always. Mm-hmm. And whenever he had a new piece that he wanted to try out, he would send her some information or the score and say, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Aww. And Clara was an incredible musician. Mm-hmm. Uh, some might say she was a better musician and would have been a better composer than Robert Schumann. But yeah. that was not meant to be. Can can we talk just a moment about what a fantastic musician she was and and the remarkable career she had? And she commanded the respect of all the great composers of the time. I mean, she was friends with all the great uh, composers of the time. And as a pianist, I mean, she was an amazing pianist. She wrote this piano concerto when she was what? Like, still a teenager, right? That's right. Yeah. That's And technically, she wrote it when she was still Clara Wieck. Mm-hmm. Ah, because right. her father, who was a very famous piano pedagogue, urged her, of course, to compose. Because at the time, it was not enough to just be a virtuoso performer. When you went to perform, you had to play some of your own music, too. Mm. And he was adamant that she learned how to compose and compose very well. Wow. But she, so she's not just sitting in a, um, in a wood-paneled room playing some of her own piano music, short, short romantic work. She, she was writing for orchestras. She was writing for a piano concerto for performance on the stage, which I have to imagine would have been unexpected. Completely unexpe- unexpected. You are absolutely right, Zach. Um, but at that time, she was also kind of starting the relationship with Robert Schumann, mm-hmm. who was hanging mm-hmm. around in the house, household. And there is also some information, and this is my musicological nerdy background. I apologize. It will take about one minute and then we'll come back to fun. Uh, That actually, when she wrote the piano concerto, she started with the third movement. Mm -hmm. And initially, it was an independent composition. Mm -hmm. And Robert Schumann volunteered to uh, write the orchestral parts for her. And she was more than happy to oblige. So it was, but it was not one of these, oh my gosh, the male oppressor is telling the female that you can't orchestrate this piece and I have Mm -hmm. to do it for you. It was nothing like that. Mm. It was that they were collaborating. Mm. And Clara said, absolutely, yes, do this. So we have some sketches where Robert has orchestrated this movement. Mm -hmm. We don't know about the first and the second or what became later the first or the second. So, mm-hmm. 
That's my musical logical. So that's how he hit on her. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great pickup line. Hey, baby, can I orchestrate your movement? <laughs> wow. Um, but but in all seriousness, were they were they an item? Were they were they colleagues at this point, or were uh, Robert and Claire were they were they engaged? They weren't married. They were no, they were engaged. not engaged. Yeah. You're right. But Robert Schumann was Vic's also piano student. <gasps> Yes. Wow. So wow, he so- was around in the house. What? That's perfect. <laughs> Thank you, Brad. Actually, it's, it is perfect because he was nowhere near as amazing a pianist as Clara. And right. so, you know, I think that's one of the things that it actually may have inadvertently doomed his own career because, I mean, when you are attempting to have that sort of career and you are watching somebody, you know, a decade mm-hmm. your junior just... Mm-hmm lap you in circles <laughs> you know it's probably you know i think that was certainly something that was mm. you know difficult for him and he did struggle with having to watch the fact that there was somebody who is significantly more talented as a pianist and you know he certainly went to many great lengths to try to advance his own pianistic ability but it never really quite panned out including hurting his finger mm-hmm. yes i was hoping yes. that you would, <laughs> you would do that because I was like, he absolutely yeah he created a it was a contraption. A contraption. Yeah, some yeah. sort of yeah. weird like exercise. Was it to like, sp- like for the pianists to like spread to the fingers apart and exercise like, train the hang on, hang on. Let, let, Let's stop for a second. So, what? <laughs> <laughs> so Robert Schumann created a contraption that was, I think, intended to exercise the ring yeah, finger weaker, and make it more, uh, more powerful because it. And this it, is for the piano least, playing, right? For, for piano playing, yeah. uh, and it, it may or may not have been one of the things that drove him mad. Did he have like an abnormally large ring finger then, or how did that work? I think what it was was it temporarily um, kind of like held other fingers down, so you were forced to work the, to strengthen with your weaker those fingers. fingers. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. and that's what drove him mad. Maybe. I mean, it would not. drive anyone mad. Probably. Oh, Zach, you're giving you're giving this. <laughs> that's actually really funny because I was going to remark that. Earlier, you had said something, Effie, of historical import, which is in the entire, I don't know, 50-some episodes of the show, we had never heard the words. You're absolutely right, Zach. I, I, you know, I was going to mention something about that, but I, I refrained. See, now, look, and then now it all just came back. This is a double-edged I, sword of inviting somebody who actually knows what they're talking about <laughs> onto the show. Not that you don't know what you're talking about. I was I was thinking more about the, me, These are not the best you, friends I have. <laughs> I have. I have to be nice to my my host for the first time I'm here so that That's I right. may be invited yeah. back. Right. Yeah, we have we a lot of we have a lot of one time guests on this show. Effie. You know what? Um, <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> well, I have now, a, okay. You, uh, you can say your piece. So, um, it it may not have led to his demise, but I think it's a very strange undertaking for somebody to try to strengthen the uh, the the weak fingers. But this was also during the time of great scientific revolution and exploration and and uh, you know perfection yeah. of the mind and body. So it could make sense. Okay. Do we really want to talk about why he died? <laughs> Well, and what that, led? Well, that sort of now, now that you open that you up, to, I think you have to. But yeah. let, let's let's hold on to that. And then I also <laughs> want to talk about this love triangle thing because I never could figure out in my years of of uh, you know being peripherally involved with classical music of 
you know, did they or didn't they, right? So we'll talk about that. But let's save it. I want to do a little quiz first. You're really trying to get people to right? listen through the whole half That's hour. Right. I, I have tell. some information for that. I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> well, hang on to it. Hang on to it. Hang on to it. Listeners, we're do don't a, go anywhere. We're going to do a little quiz. <laughs> Stay tuned to FM 91. We're going to do what I call a literary love triangles quiz, right? I'm going to give you the year that <laughs> this book was written. I'll give you the year the book was written. I won't give you the author or the title. You have to come up with the with what you know book it is. You get extra credit if you can name the love triangle. The so you just give us a date and we have to come up with a no, triangle? I'm going to give you quotes. i got okay. three different quotes. One after the other, right? So okay. let's pull up a little Love Shack music. Merwin's like, I'm ready. <laughs> I'm so not ready. I feel very stressed out. <laughs> Is this supposed to be the B-52s or Something Escabel? Like I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Get in the mood. Yes, these chairs don't dance the way they should. All right, here's the first one. This is from a novel written in 1973. The first quote is this. Life isn't fair, it's just fairer than death, that's all. Any idea? No. Okay, quote B. If your love were a grain of sand, mine would be a universe of beaches. It's a great line. This is a, a novel that was made into a movie. And the movie doesn't... I don't know that it has these particular quotes. The last quote actually does come... (laughs) The last quote does come from the book and the movie. Inconceivable. The Princess Bride. Yeah. I didn't know it was based on a book. It was a book. Published in 1973 by William Goldman. Here's the second one. This was written in 1813... The first quote is, A lady's imagination is very rapid. It jumps from admiration to love, from love to matrimony in a moment. Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice. Very good. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Okay, next one. I missed Inconceivable. (laughs) That was was Inconceivable. (laughs) Yeah. I should have had that. (laughs) Next one. A novel written in 1936. I can't think about that right now. If I do, I'll go crazy. I'll think about that tomorrow. Wow, that's like my life print. I know. I was just thinking that's what I do every day. Okay. Second quote. Death, taxes, and childbirth. There's never any convenient time for any of them. This is 1936? 1936. Third and final quote. My dear, I don't give a damn. (laughs) Calm with the wind? Yeah. Yay! Calm with the wind. It it was uh, Clark Gable that said, frankly. There was not much time between the book and uh, the movie then. No, not at all. And that was her only novel, you know. Wow. And, and it was a big one. Okay, that goes to Zach. Here's the next one. Uh, this is from, actually from a play written in 1897. A kiss is a secret which takes the lips for the ear. Wow. wow. Great quote, huh? That is a great quote. I wish I had that on Valentine's Day. Here's the next one. All our souls are written in our eyes. And the third one, which should provide a good clue. A great nose may be an index of a great soul. Abby Pinocchio. Close. <laughs> <laughs> what other literary character can you think of that has a great nose? Jimmy Durante. <laughs> no. uh, um, this is uh, Cyrano? Uh, Cyrano. Cyrano. Yeah. Cyrano de Bergerac. Very good. Boy, Zach, you're cleaning up here. When are we getting back to the 19th century? Right now. Well, okay. here's, a, here's a novel written in 1847. 
First quote is, If he loved with all the powers of his puny being, he couldn't love as much in 80 years as I could in a day. You get that? Okay. Here's the next quote. If you ever looked at me once with what I know is in you, I would be your slave. No? This is a novel by one of the Bronte sisters. Heaven did not seem to be my home, and I broke my heart with weeping to come back to earth. And the angels were so angry that they flung me out into the middle of the heath on the top of... This would be Wuthering Heights. Wuthering Heights. Yes. I'm going to give that to Merwin. Okay, here's another one. Now we're going to the 18th century, Effie, if you're okay with that. This was... I'm trying here. <laughs> so, so all of these have a love triangle. Yeah, yeah. they have a love triangle. I guess I should have mentioned yeah, who the love I, triangle was, but we're not going to go back at this point. <laughs> going forward, I can mention the love triangle after the after the fact. This is a, a novella written mm-hmm. in 1774, a short novel. Um, the first quote is this. The human race is a monotonous affair. Most people spend the greatest part of their time working in order to live, and what little freedom remains so fills them with fear that they seek out any and every means to be rid of it. That was really complicated to say. Here's the next quote. What I know, everyone can know. I only have my heart. I mentioned this was a novel written in German originally and, and made the author famous. Okay. Um, the last quote is in French because this was made into an opera. Pourquoi me réveiller? The uh, sorrows of young Werther. Werther, oh. yes. You know about this novel, right? This this like inspired young men all across Europe to dress up like Werther and to revel in their depression. And, what, what do they and call it? Suicide. Yeah, and commit suicide. Yeah, Werther <laughs> Fever. Not a happy end to this. Fever. Unfortunately, a lot of them yeah. decided to follow through and kill themselves. So. Really? Kind yeah. of like emo music. Massonet still wrote years. the opera knowing that? Yeah. Really? I don't think the opera killed anybody, but the, the novel definitely. Maybe a not couple a audience se- members. It's a difficult second violin part, so it might have killed a few people. <laughs> <laughs> I actually love the opera. <laughs> yeah. I do. What were you going to talk about? Oh, we're talking about Brahms and Schumann. <laughs> wow. You had you you were going to jump in, Effie, with something before. We were going to talk about uh, Schumann's death. Oh, yeah, the death of Schumann. L'amour de Schumann. Yeah. <laughs> ah, okay. Yes. Well, you have to understand that I studied with a Schumann scholar by the name of John Daverio, oh. who wrote one of the most definitive biographies on Robert Schumann. And... Um, the consensus, I think, still is, although some people don't accept it, that Schumann had secondary syphilis. Mm-hmm. He suffered from mm-hmm. secondary syphilis. Clara was very, very lucky never to get it. Mm-hmm. And his uh, children didn't get it. So part of the, the symptoms of s- secondary syphilis have to do with the degeneration of the brain. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what led him to that condition. But he was also very smart. When he realized that he was not doing well, he begged for Clara to send him to the institution Mm, uh, because he was afraid something was going to happen and he was going to harm her or her children. And that's that's really what happened. What was the relationship uh, between uh, Robert Schumann and Brahms uh, later in Robert's life? Well, it, there wasn't too much later, mm-hmm. right? Because they met in 53, 54. Four months later, he jumped off the bridge. He, yeah. 
they, yeah. they, they met that close. I didn't realize uh, that yeah. they met that yeah. late in his life. And within mm. three years, he was dead. Mm. But he would go to the to the institution because it was outside of Bonn. And Clara would always write to him and say, how is Robert? Could you please send me a letter and let me know how my Robert is doing? Yeah. Um, so, so maybe it's not that there was a love triangle to start with. Uh, sounds like later, with some of those letters that Brad alluded to, uh, yeah. Brahms probably ended up falling for Clara in a pretty serious way. Well, but certainly. there was there was this sense of intimacy, and he was brought into the family in such a, uh, a meaningful way. Right. And then he was the conduit between husband and wife and communication. Well, there, in the sense that Robert Schumann, certainly his his spirit hung over that relationship, mm-hmm. you know, for their right. entire lives. There, there was a love triangle of sorts there. I and mean, you can make it a quadrangle, bring in Beethoven, and, and, you know, all kinds of possibilities open up. Okay, Brad, that's where I draw the line. Um, because if we start with Beethoven, we will never end. <laughs> but, but didn't Brahms, uh, didn't he support or Clara in her career by taking care of all of her children so you, she could travel. So she, it, it's kind of like um, like you see someone in need and you can't, he's such a good person oh, that you have, you have to help her, you know? You, you're absolutely right. Mm. He was such a loyal friend. Mm. And that's, he, he basically held the household together for three years mm-hmm. while uh, Clara was going around trying to make money, essentially, mm-hmm. because she needed money to raise her family. Yeah, right. And Brahms was there. Mm. And when Robert died, and again, one moment of musicological nerdiness here. Um, when he died, Because we're never nerdy on this podcast, right? <laughs> uh, Brahms asked Clara to go on a vacation with him. Mm. And they took the Rhine River and they went down all the way to Switzerland. And something happened there. And oh. chances are that, uh, that Johannes... Wow. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay, I'm trying here. (laughs) Chances are that Johannes declared his love for Clara, and maybe he wanted for something to develop, but they came back, and we never really have found out what happened. That's the place to do it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's beautiful there. Well, that's why we just make it up. In uh, how many years after? uh, Just a year. Like a year after Robert Schumann's death. And chances are Clara was not Mm -hmm. going to feel... Betray sure. the legacy. So, if not husband. a muse, then would she have been um, the unrequited love? It could have been for Brahms. Mm-hmm. I don't think Clara was in love with him mm-hmm. in the sense that he wanted to be with him, but she cherished him as a dear friend all sure. her life. Mm-hmm. And of course, Brahms died only a year after Clara, mm-hmm. and oh. that uh, her death was such a huge blow to him. Yeah. Uh, and probably precipitated his death. But he had, I mean, he didn't only have eyes just specifically for Clara because there were other women in his life. But I think it's worth noting how those relationships never really developed. And in fact, we probably know the relationships more for the musical codes they engendered than for actually well, yeah, anything yeah. that happened in the relationships themselves. Yeah, so there, it, there was the woman that he was going to propose to, or and she basically dumped him. And, I got to Von Seibold, yeah. 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 Interesting. A lot of interesting stuff there. But what we all want to know is what happened behind those closed doors, right? In Switzerland? Yeah. What happened in Switzerland <laughs> seems like a great <laughs> so title. Is that, for, <laughs> is that like the crux of this whole thing that people just, they don't know? I mean, did they or didn't they? And we just, we'll never know. 
we'll never know, but I don't think it's that important. Yeah. Really, at the end no, of the day. No, it is important. We want to know. <laughs> okay. right. This is not the National I Enquirer, mean, Brad. Um, <laughs> I, so, so let's go to some more musical nerdiness. I'm interested that both um, – so Robert Schumann and Clara Schumann both have a piano concerto in the same key. So That's if right. Clara wrote hers first, right, and Robert helped orchestrate parts of it, did that in any way influence how he approached his piano concerto later? Second time, I'm going to say, great question, Zach. Ha. Fantastic. <laughs> want to make sure everybody heard that. <laughs> you get an A. <laughs> Her expressions every time I hit the soundboard are, are the best thing. Unfortunately, people can't, can't see it, but we can hear our reactions. We can post the picture. Yeah. Um, besides sharing the same key, mm-hmm. what... We know, since we're all here, what we know of Clara's Piano Concerto is that it's essentially in one movement. It has mm-hmm. three distinct sections, but mm-hmm. there is no pause after the first movement. It just moves mm-hmm. seamlessly into the second movement and the second slow movement into the third movement. So this kind of organicism that we call in music of the 19th century was at the center of Robert Schumann's yeah. investigation as a composer. And he ended up doing it in so many other of his compositions. Maybe not so much in the piano concerto that he wrote, but certainly in his symphonies. And he did it in the fantasy, which is a very famous composition that has this kind of free flow. That's why we say also Clara's piano concerto is fantasy-like, yeah. mm-hmm. because it's, it doesn't adhere to the principles of traditional piano concerto. Doesn't the second movement go right into the third in his piano concerto, though? It is a taka, isn't it? It is a taka, yeah. yes, but not the first. Right. But not right. the first. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So he... Um, Actually, John DeVerio, in his book, insightfully has said that probably at the back of his head, he had Clara's music Mm -hmm. and this kind of fusion of the music into one mega romance-like, fantasy-like composition, which, of course, permeates a lot of his own output was already there because he was influenced by Clara and well, her early music. In a way, doesn't that feed a little bit into the idea of her being his muse and her being Brahms's muse? I mean, to play devil's advocate here, what position does that put Clara in? And, and, and what are your thoughts about that, Effie? I think of muse, I'm Greek, right? When I think of muse, <laughs> I think of muses. And the muses are there to inspire, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And in that sense, absolutely. I understand, and we all understand here, Mm -hmm. that she was an inspiration for Robert Schumann and maybe partly for Johannes Brahms as well. But on a daily basis, what these composers did was not really necessary because of what Clara did Mm -hmm. or because of her presence. No. But this this influence was there, certainly. And maybe you can tell me why you called the program the Clara Schumann the Muse. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm putting you on the spot. That's to you, Merwin. Well, I think that it is absolutely to explore this relationship because it is one of the most interesting relationships in all of music. And I think that when you're looking with Brahms in particular, it's uh, it is a little bit, we are skirting it a little bit, because I do think, in a way, more of his music was inspired by Agatha von Seibold than, a, than Clara Schumann. But so much of his music would never have actually come to be without Clara. And I don't mean that in the 
it would have he would never have thought of it or written it down but he would never have preserved it it would never have taken the final form that it did without clara schumann mm. something like the piano quintet which mm. went through like nine billion different types of i'm exaggerating <laughs> but many different versions <laughs> before and always with clara schumann's input yeah she this, this everything, yeah right? exactly this should no this seems a little too symphonic no we this can't just be the piano trio you need to take these ideas make it into a piano quintet those are the so Brahms was so ruthless with his own compositions. He would destroy so many of them. And in a way, the compositions would only stay in his, you know, actually get to the published form with Clara Schumann's guidance and encouragement. So in that sense, you know, I think it's actually a very fair comment. And I think when you're talking about Brahms' first symphony, so many different versions and so many failed symphonies before that and this is the one that came to be and can, yeah. can we talk oh. about the first symphony oh, please? yeah sure. definitely we, we don't have a it's lot a, of time it's left, pretty good wanna, yeah. it's a pretty good symphony <laughs> yes <laughs> the yes. best first I've symphony heard it. It ever is. written it's actually the 10th symphony yeah. that's what Hans von Billow of said of Brahms or oh. Beethoven <laughs> oh no he said that of Brahms's first symphony ah. and of course when in the 19th century you say the 10th, you know it means Beethoven's 10th. Right. Yeah. Or it would have been Beethoven's 10th if he had composed. And there is an allusion to Beethoven's 9th in Brahms's first. Yes. There is a tune that comes about six minutes into the fourth movement mm-hmm. that has been uh, misquoted sometimes as a quotation of Beethoven's Ninth Ode to Joy theme. Mm-hmm. It's not an exact quotation, but it's v- really, it, uh, it alludes mm-hmm. to the tune from Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Mm. This is, reminds me somehow of that who's on first routine, you know, like who's on first, Beethoven, second, no, I don't know. Nobody gets it. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. This is why you're a musicologist and I'm not. <laughs> Am I allowed to swear? I don't know what I can say here on it will the be radio. Yeah. But it, it will be a quotation. I'm not swearing. It's yeah. going to be uh, Brahms swearing. Oh, I thought you meant just as a pejorative. <laughs> like, <laughs> she, she's not trying to swear at just you. Just because you were mad right. at me, you know. No, no, no. No, okay. no. I'm, I'm quoting. I'm channeling Brahms here. We can beep it out. After the premiere of the first symphony in 1876, of course all the audiences heard that allusion to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And they were very eager to point it out to him. Oh my gosh, Johannes, in the fourth movement you have a tune that sounds very much like the Ode to Joy. Um, Brahms was kind of an acerbic guy. He knew exactly what he had done. He didn't expect anybody to really school him on the fact that he had a tune there that sounded like Beethoven's music. And he said something in German that would translate as, yes, every jackass can say that. Uh, You can say jackass on on the radio. That's fine. And on a podcast. So we're good with that. So, uh, I mean, I hear it on an almost daily basis, so it's fine. are you trying to incorporate Beethoven's Ninth Symphony into your life, too? Yeah. yeah right. Everybody needs more Beethoven and um, Brahms. So, 1873? Six. Six. So, how long after meeting Clara and Robert was that? That was 23 Whoa. years? Uh, that was 23 years. Okay. That's correct. Yeah. So, if we had to think about it, 
fits and starts. He tried uh, to write a symphony. It became something else many times. Other times it would go into the wastebasket. I mean, was this something that he wanted to do and kept distracting himself with? Or was it something that he felt the burden of Beethoven and possibly Robert Schumann over his shoulder and he was running away from it? Well, Merwin is shaking his head, so I think we both know here <laughs> the... I I would I think what you just said is very appropriate and I think when you look at the forms that Beethoven was associated with things like the string quartet or the symphony you see there's a real um there's a real anxiety of influence in there and I think very nice yeah. Marwin Oh yeah, <laughs> <thanks>. <laughs> you're getting an A2 Yeah <laughs> Yeah, we're it's all going usually to get graded at the end. <laughs> but I think, but when you listen to Brahms's first string quartet, it doesn't have the same freedom that, say, his string sextets do, which are just mm. so incredibly, wonderfully unrestrained. And the and the Beethoven first, um, like the Beethoven movements, all these these C minor things, like the the first symphony of Brahms is in C minor, and the first string quartet also in C minor. I think those are very consciously Beethovenian keys, and mm-hmm. I think Brahms is very much aware that he's writing his string quartet after Bra- um, Beethoven, and his, he's writing his first symphony after Beethoven, and he he knows he has to wrestle with that. And the symphony is, I think, much more successful than his first string quartet. But why is it that we have to say it's on Brahms's shoulders to do this? Because, I mean, Schumann composed after Beethoven, but and nobody Schumann, accused him of trying to be that Schumann next Beethoven. put that mantle on Brahms. Schumann did it. Him. Mm-hmm. Schumann actually did it. So it's his fault. Yeah. So once again, it's all Robert's fault. <laughs> <laughs> well, so going back to something, going back to the, the Brahms and Clara relationship, one of the characteristics I love about uh, Brahms' symphonies and his chamber music as well is the the way it's edited. Uh, now I know it's, it's Clara who is his editor. <laughs> he uh, he had, uh, I think by the end of his fourth symphony, his last symphony, uh, no extra notes. I mean, there was great efficiency in his writing, but also great drama. Um, um, so is that a characteristic that Brahms would have insisted upon, and that's why he didn't write his first symphony until so long uh, after he uh, tried to start writing it. But the, or the next three symphonies came fairly Fairly quickly, quickly right. That. So it opens the floodgates, or is it something that Clara would have insisted that he master before he proceed with it? Um, musicological <laughs> nerdiness number three. <laughs> <laughs> I love how we're keeping track. <laughs> Uh, you're right that Robert put that mantle on him uh, to write symphonies and write all, not only symphonies but also choral music, mm-hmm. which he did magnificently. Uh, we also have to think of the other composers who write symphonies in the 19th century and the politics of music in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Brahms is the lone voice of what we call absolute music, mm-hmm. music that has no external connections. And then we have all these other composers who write symphonies, but they are programmatic. They mm-hmm. have extra musical mm-hmm. associations, Berlioz, Liszt, and of course we have Wagner in the, in the realm of opera. And they are a very powerful voice. Mm. And the only one who really can hold his own and write absolute music the way Beethoven did is Brahms. Mm. But I also want to note one more connection here, and it's a little show and tell that unfortunately our listeners are not going to see. It's a card that Brahms wrote to Clara from 
his summer spa in Switzerland <laughs> in uh, September of 1868. So he didn't write a, a letter. He just sent her this card that has a musical quotation. Uh-huh. And under the musical quotation, or first of all, above the musical quotation, he says, thus blew the Alphorn today. He was in Switzerland, <laughs> right? Is and that then an, an euphemism? Or? Appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <pray>. <laughs> <laughs> and then under the music, he writes, high from the mountain, deep in the valley, I greet you a thousand times. And then you sing this tune, and it is the famous Alphorn tune from the fourth movement of his first symphony. So we know that he had this tune in his mind in 1868. Oh, my. So Five years this before. is a clara connection also that works into the symphony. Mm. Yeah. And then the final product in 1876. Wow. So it was just kind of like this whole postcard sort of goes back to those closed doors in Switzerland. You know, it has that kind of uh, a, kind of a cryptic sense to it. Would you agree with that? It is cryptic because only Clara would have known of that connection. Right. And right. now we, musicologists, now everybody we're who listens to the podcast, we're, we're telling everybody. They all know now. <laughs> this is breaking news. <laughs> the world knows now. Breaking news from 1868. <laughs> <laughs> so this is well, not like a, a dissertation that someone is writing and they take years and years and years to complete. It's it's actual pressure probably on Brahms's part to to live up to the expectations that people have of mm-hmm. that type of composer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But we don't want to paint a portrait of Brahms as being like, you know, this this poor composer under pressure all of his life. I mean, he was a man of, of tremendous humor. He was also a, a man who was very interested in research and scholarship and un- uncovering and learning about the music of, of the past. You know, somebody who was really... Um, uh, apart from his relationship with the Schumanns, was a, just a tremendous personality in the world of music. He was, uh, but Beethoven haunted him, and that's <laughs> what he would tell people. Ooh. <laughs> and um, yeah, when Beethoven I teach, this right here, sitting on my shoulder, guys. <laughs> it's absolutely correct. When I teach Brahms, there is a famous picture of his study in Vienna. And right behind his piano, where he, w- he would sit down to compose, there is a bust of Beethoven. So, literally, he would haunt him. Every time he would sit at the piano, Beethoven was right behind him. Wow. But And it's like you look at all of the different ways that Brahms avoided the symphony until he was ready. These gorgeous serenades, Mm -hmm. beautiful serenades that somehow are not... He's procrastinating, right? Well, he's he's not. He's finding these incredible... He's... He's creating these works which don't have that influence behind them. This is his das Lied. Yeah, yeah, yeah just yeah. a way to avoid being directly compared. And you see how free and beautiful and just there's this, you know, there is something about like the younger Brahms works that don't have that pressure that are that are just wonderful and so, so opening and freeing and it's just a very different Brahms than the than the symphonic Brahms or yeah. the string quartet Brahms. Yeah. Should, should we all be so talented at Absolutely. procrastination, right? <laughs> Absolutely, right. <laughs> but didn't he even like where was the symphony premiered? Didn't he not want to premiere it in Vienna? It didn't premiere in Vienna. It premiered in Karlsruhe. 
Yeah, okay. And a couple of months later, it moved to Vienna. So he, he did a little tryout in the in the suburbs before Sorry. he. Sorry. And he he used to do that <laughs> all the time. Marketing. Also. I'm sorry to to throw in numbers? Wagner again. <laughs> um, I well, can't, and you should be. <laughs> I can't do anything without mentioning Wagner. Um, do you remember in the summer of 1876? I was, I was not. No, no. <laughs> the Ring Cycle premiered at Bayreuth. Thank you very much, Brad, yeah. for your serious answer to this it, serious question. It was also question. the centenary of our United States of America, if you remember. The Statue of Liberty came over from France, yeah, and Wagner wrote a centennial overture mm-hmm. for the city of Philadelphia, somewhere so, around that time, yeah. Lots of very important things happened, and the musical world was already reeling from the ring in Bayreuth in mm-hmm. 1876, when Brahms premiered his Brahms symphony. was like, I can slip this symphony in, nobody <laughs> <Yes>. will <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Thank you, Wagner. <laughs> so... Um, the first symphony, was it uh, positively reviewed? Uh, was it uh, received well? By everybody, mm-hmm. even his detractors. Mm-hmm. And Edward Hanslick, mm-hmm. who was the biggest opponent of program music, held Brahms's music and Brahms himself at a pedestal. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he had put him at a pedestal. And but he how wrote... How did he feel about Wagner? Mm. <laughs> oh, no. That's a podcast for another day. Positive thoughts. <laughs> um but is that typical? So as we're thinking about this, you know, first symphony, uh, later in life, a uh, very mature composer writing his first symphony. Um, is it typical for a first symphony to get the kind of praise that this did? It depends. That's an inter- another interesting question, Zach. <laughs> uh, it depends. Uh, the world was anticipating Brahms's first symphony, right? So everybody was waiting to see what it was going mm-hmm. to be like. And Brahms was a known entity. He was not an unknown composer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so immediately the connections with Brahms happened. Hans Lick wrote in his review of the first symphony that it was the best symphony that had happened after Beethoven's mm-hmm. symphonies. Uh, Hans von Billow, the famous conductor, mm-hmm wrote that Brahms was the continuation of the Beethovenian tradition, and he said the famous, there are only three Bs in German music. <laughs> First there is Bach, then there is Beethoven, and there is Brahms. Yeah. Poor Max Brook. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> what about Bruckner? Yeah, right. Uh, so, Effie, if somebody's listening to this right now who's not heard the Brahms First Symphony, what's a word or a characteristic that you think embodies what uh, the symphony will demonstrate for them? Mm, it's difficult to encapsulate that in one word. Hang on. This doesn't help, <laughs> that Brad. That does not help. <laughs> okay. Bad Brad. <laughs> That's two more Bs. <laughs> <laughs> Just trying to get them all in there. Um, this is a symphony. Uh, Brahms is a composer's composer. Mm-hmm. And you need to look at his music as well to understand how beautifully crafted it is. So the audience are are going to hear lush harmonies and beautiful tone colors and great timbres and textures. Uh, Not so many melodies until you get to the fourth movement, essentially. But the musical writing is so dense and so beautiful and so well thought through. And then when you look at the score... 
that's when you really appreciate Brahms. That's why I always ask my students, if you really want to know Brahms, you have to study his scores. Mm -hmm. If you don't study his scores, you're just getting a glimpse into his music. Mm -hmm. And I understand that our audiences won't have the opportunity to do that, but listen for the beautiful sound. And I don't use the word beautiful haphazardly. Mm -hmm. It's a great romantic sound. Well, we're going to have to uh, stop right there. My thanks to Zach Vassar, Merwin Sue, and Felicia Canny, and of course to our special guest, Effie Papanicolaou. How was it for you, Effie? It was wonderful. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah? You would come back? I would come back okay. in a heartbeat. Yay! Glad to hear it. This program is a production of WGTE Public Media in collaboration with our sponsor, the Toledo Symphony. You can find us as a podcast. That's at our website, wgte.org slash lab. I'm Brad Cresswell, and you've been listening to Toledo Symphony Lab here on FM 91.